an early Happy New Year to everybody. A um, couple days left, and then we're on it, 2020. Um, anybody uh, surprised how quickly the decade went? Not just the past year, but the past decade. It was, uh, it was a pretty quick one. And um, I know a lot happened over the course of this decade, and I hope a lot uh, good happened um, in your life. And uh, regardless of what went on, uh, we know that God's got good plans for you going into 2020, right? We know for that for everyone in here, out of his love and out of his good nature and out of his gospel purposes, he intends good for everybody in here. And that's part of what he wants to draw people into uh, through worship and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so welcome, welcome. If I don't know you yet, my, my name is Rollin. I'm the uh, lead pastor here, and it's a, a privilege to be with you today. So I am going to uh, finish this year <clears throat> with you, which is a privilege, um, by going back to one last uh, familiar scripture for the Christmas season. And it's a familiar scripture, but it is uh, one that we at times lump together. Thank you. We lump together with the, um, the Christmas story. But if we actually look at it and know it in its context, its proper context, it's actually one that takes place uh, about two years after Jesus was born, uh, about two years after uh, Jesus was born, sometime in that time period. And so um, today we're going to finish this series about when God draws near, which is what the whole Christmas season is about, um, by talking about an extraordinary response. Uh, whenever we uh, see God draw near, it, it, it demands an extraordinary response from us. Uh, that just as God himself made an extraordinary effort uh, to draw near to us, uh, he expects an extraordinary response on our parts as we draw near to him. So today, if you're taking notes, um, we're going to talk about the nature of lordship. We're going to talk about appropriate gifts. And we're going to finally end with talking about returning a different way. I'm going to repeat that. It's the nature of lordship, appropriate gifts, and then finally returning a different way. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your uh, word to us today. God, we thank you that regardless of how we ended 2019, that God, you've got better things for us in Christ Jesus in 2020. And God, we thank you that you've shown us your extraordinary grace by drawing near in your son, Jesus Christ, sending the perfect son of God, the perfect lamb of God to be the sacrifice for the sin of the world and not just to sacrifice himself, but to draw near those who are once far off to yourself. God, we pray that today as we look into your word and as we turn this chapter from 2019 to 2020, that faith would rise up in our hearts, that God, we'd be able to see you clearly, that we'd be able to leave our past behind, and that God, we'd be able to come into all the good news that you purchased for us on the cross in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, today, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Matthew um, chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. If you don't have a Bible, it should be on the screen for you. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. That's what we're all here for, right? We're here to worship him, to serve him, to lay down our lives, our hearts before him, to humble ourselves, as Pastor Cole was talking about before him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, 
he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod, that same Herod who said he wanted to worship, is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had spoken, <clears throat> sorry, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So we see this as a uh, scripture that we recognize during the Christmas season, um, but we often don't break it down to understand what it actually means to our individual lives. And when we look at this story, we, uh, again, as I already mentioned, we can see that this wasn't a story of uh, Jesus in the inn. It wasn't a story of Jesus in the manger. It was Jesus back at home. And within a two-year period, Mary and Joseph had returned from the census that was taken, and they started to raise the child Jesus. But it said that uh, during this time, in fulfillment of prophecy and in fulfillment of the Word of God, it said that wise men from the East were told that this Jesus was showing up on the scene. And these wise men at the time were more than likely people who were coming from maybe some place around Babylon. And if you know anything about Israel, uh, Israeli history, it's, we know that for a period of time, 70 years at least, the Israelites, because of judgment for their sin, they were exiled into a foreign land. They were exiled into a place called Babylon, and there they served, and they built homes, and they had lives in exile as part of the Jewish diaspora for a long period of time, waiting for God to return to them to their home and the promises that God had made to them. 
And we see that over the course of that time that these wise men who weren't necessarily uh, Christian people, they weren't necessarily Jewish people, but they were people who were religious, spiritual of some sort, right? They might have back in the day been known as astrologers. They might have been known as uh, people who looked into the stars and tried to discern and ascertain, you know, the ways of men. If we were to fast forward to our times, they, they might have been people like who looked into people who read palms or people who looked to the prophecies of men like Nostradamus to try to predict the happenings and the events of the world. And these wise men, they had heard in the midst of the Jewish diaspora about the prophecies that were made about this Messiah who was coming. And so when they saw the star rise, even according to the word of the Lord, they got on the move. They got on the move to make their way towards this Christ, towards this King, this Messiah, this Savior who had been predicted. That regardless of what type of background that they'd grown up in, they knew that there was something about this Jesus, something about this Messiah who was coming that needed to change and radically uh, alter their way of life. They knew that there was somebody coming who was meant to be ruler, who was meant to be king, who was meant to literally dictate the way that their life was arranged and would go from that point forward. And so they started on a trek, and the first place that they came to was <clears throat> Judah, where a king named Herod was. And Herod wasn't necessarily a Jewish man either. He was an Idumean king who was placed there during the Roman Empire, and he was placed there to rule over that Jewish territory. And he was a master builder during that time. And so he basically was one who built massive structures throughout the Roman Empire. And he even in the course of his rulership helped to rebuild the Jewish temple that had been destroyed during that time. He wasn't necessarily giving himself to the things of God, but he was sympathetic, right, to the things of God. And so he helped rebuild that temple. You might have thought of him in modern times like one of the Rockefellers, right? If you've ever been to uh, New York, you see that throughout New York City, the Rockefellers are building buildings with their namesake all throughout. Anybody ever been to Rockefeller Center before, right? Or maybe Carnegie, right? Uh, Carnegie Hall and, you know, great men of wealth and power back in the day. Well, Herod was one of these men. But whenever he encountered the wise men who basically said, hey, we've come to worship the one who was born king of the Jews, it challenged him. It challenged him because of the fact that he had been used to running things up to that point. He'd been used to being in charge of his own life, and not only of his own life, but also the lives of those he had been appointed to rule over in that region for many, many years. And he had gone unchallenged to the point that he had been actually pretty violent in his rulership, violent to the point that he had killed even his own wife and many of his children when they tried to rise up against him. And all of a sudden, he got this word that there was a king to be born the king of the Jews. And when he heard this word, he was threatened by it. Because all of a sudden, if there was a king of the Jews being born and showing up in his territory, that meant that his rulership would be diminished. That his authority in his own life, that his authority over the territory of the Jews that he had previously ruled would be challenged. 
And so all of a sudden, he had to make a choice. He said, what am I going to do with this information? He hired the um, wise men, and he said, hey, listen, secretly, go and find out this, where this king is. Go and find out where this person who's going to be king of the Jews is going to be born, and go find out where he is so that I can come and worship him too. We know that that was a lie because obviously we read further in the chapter that whenever they actually did find him, Herod had plans not to go and worship him, but to instead destroy him and get rid of the person that was going to challenge his own authority in his own life. And we could look at this uh, story and we could often say, oh, bad Herod. But how often can we bring it down to our own life and look at the way that we're living? And whenever God draws near, we know that God draws near to benevolently rule our lives. Not just be a friend, not just be a counselor, not just be a savior, but be Lord and master of our lives. Just as Jesus was born to be king of the Jews, he comes to be king of our lives. But just like Herod, we oftentimes are threatened by that. We oftentimes are threatened by the idea of anybody telling us what our identity should be, how I should see the world around me or even my own nature, what I should do with my life and my time and my relationships and my pursuits. And just like Herod, we often have the same reaction, wanting to get rid of anybody or anything that might challenge his rulership in our lives. Has anybody been there before? You've been sympathetic to the prophecies, the commands, the, even the story of God. But when it came to the fact of his identity, that he was coming to be ruler in your life, you had an adverse reaction. You might even play the game. I show up in church, I show up in religious settings, I talk to people about God. But secretly, I'm making a plan in my heart to really keep things the way I've always had them and do things the way I've always done them. This guy who's showing up in my life, I don't want him to be king. Matter of fact, I'm going to find a way to secretly get rid of any opinion that actually contradicts the way that I want to live. I will remove people from my life that rub against me. I will remove the word of God that actually challenges my lifestyle. I will remove anything that challenges the way that I want to live. But when God draws near, he comes to rule. And if you're going to serve God, you've got to not respond like Herod, but you've got to respond like the wise men, regardless of where you started from. You've got to choose to humble yourself and worship him and say, I'm going to relate to him as he is, not just as a good idea, not just as a savior, but the one who came to be king and Lord of my life. That means from this point forward, if I'm going to really draw near to God as he's drawn near to me, I've got to serve Jesus as Lord. The question is, how have we been serving him up to this point? Has he just been a good story? Has he just been a good religious tradition that you give adherence to once or twice a year? Or is he the one who's actually defining you on a daily basis? 
when we think about lordship, we think about the things that are treasures in our lives. What is the treasure in your life? When the wise men came to worship him, they had practical worship. It wasn't just an idea of worship, but their worship was practical. See, the problem with our period of time is that we have ideas about plenty of things and think that just because we've thought about things, we somehow participate in that which we've thought about. <laughs> we do it in sports, don't we? Anybody ever been hard on an athlete before who's worked day in and day out to be at the top of their game, taking beatings that you'll never take and I'll never take? But when they kick that field goal that causes us to miss an all-important playoff run, we want to crucify them, right? But we've never done what they've done. We've not paid the price that they've paid. Or you look at some other form of entertainer or even some official who's governing and leading. Anybody ever been critical before of a leader and government positions and actually the hard decisions that they've had to make in leading and condemn them for the choices that they've made, not knowing the pressures that they're standing up against? But it's easy when we're on the sidelines, right? It's easy when we don't have to hold up those things. See, Jesus is different, though. Whenever he makes commands, he says, I've entered into every act of obedience that I expect you to obey. And so when I lay hold of the treasures in your life, it's not something that I myself don't understand. Because whatever it is that I've held as a treasure, I've already given up completely to my heavenly Father to walk in obedience to him. When he commands something, he commands that which he's already done himself. And so what are those treasures like the wise men that it could be for us? Number one, it could be what? It could be our relationships, how we view our relationships. So many people view their relationships and how they're going to relate to their relationships as treasures that can't be touched. Whether they're immoral or not, even if they're healthy or not, people might come and say, hey, listen, this isn't the way that God wants you to relate to this person or you know, treat this individual. And you're like, listen, I'm telling you, you're not going to touch my precious. <laughs> right? My precious. Don't touch my relationships. It's my treasure. I like the idea of God, but don't touch what's precious to me. Or my finances, right? That's what the wise men came to bring. They said, I'm coming with gold and myrrh to honor and worship him. Why? Because Jesus said in his ministry that where my treasure is, there also my heart is. And when God's saying, hey, listen, I want the first and best of everything that I give you, people are like, no, no, no. It's mine. Mine, 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 mine. Right? And he's like, no, it's not. You're a steward, not an owner. Or what about the use of your time? The use of your time. We think about the wise men coming to worship Jesus coming to give their gifts. If they had actually been from Babylon and were on that trek and they had gone along the main trade route from Babylon to the area of Jer 
Israel where Jesus found himself, it would have been an 800-mile journey. An 800-mile journey. So that if they had gone about 20 miles a day, it would have taken them at least almost a month and a half to get there. And whenever we're told to get up and worship God on a Sunday morning, it's like, I'm tired. But I have brunch plans. <laughs> right? And there's so much I need to do before I come and worship Jesus. He's like, well, lordship interrupts those plans. And worship has you build a life around inconveniencing yourself to honor the one who's king. Everybody following me? These are the things that are treasures to us that when God draws near, he comes to benevolently rule. Ravi Zechariah said it this way, when you find your definitions in God, which means that he defines your life, you find the very purpose for which you were created. You see, he's worshiped, gives you purpose, and defines you. He said, put your hand into God's hand. Know his absolutes. Absolutes, which means that he's Lord and governor of your life. He's not giving you opinions. He's giving you commands. He says, know his absolutes. Demonstrate his love. Present his truth, not the world's truth, not our culture's truth, but his truth. Present his truth, and the message of redemption and transformation will take hold in your life. Many times people find themselves circle, um, circling around the story of God, but find themselves unchanged because they haven't embraced his absolutes. They haven't embraced his nature, his absolute lordship. He says, when you do, I'll transform your life. Because what it does is it evokes out of you appropriate gifts. When God draws near, <clears throat> it's not only to benevolently rule, but when God draws near, it demands an extraordinary response on our part. <clears throat> the gifts, ultimately, that the wise men would bring when we continue to read down in the story, because Herod went on a murderous rampage, it said that though Joseph and Mary weren't of great means, in the midst of the murderous rampage that Herod went on to get rid of Jesus the Christ, they were able to escape down to Egypt for a period of time. Anybody ever stayed in an Airbnb before? Okay. Anybody ever thought about staying at an Airbnb until the next election cycle, okay? That would, that would actually cost some money, right? That would cost you something. You think about that. They, they went down to Egypt to escape his wrath until Herod passed away. That was some time. How are these people of meager means able to do that? Well, they were able to do it because of the appropriate gifts that the wise men sent, that they came to worship with. When they were able to use the frankincense, the gold, and the myrrh, they were able to actually escape. And the life of Jesus the Christ was saved because of their gifts, which actually led to his life and ministry that ultimately would save the world, including you and I. You see, one thing led to another. The, the wise men might have thought, well, these gifts really don't matter. 
They really aren't very important. But the gifts that they came, that they made that 800-plus mile potentially journey to give to Jesus and his parents paved the way for his salvation so that he could be the salvation of you and I, the salvation of the world. You ever think about it like this? That the gifts that they gave provided for the salvation of the world because of what Jesus would do. And it said that they would go, these gifts that they gave literally paved the way for the protection of Christ, the fulfillment of his earthly ministry, and the perpetuation of generational gospel work. Your gifts do the same, whether it be your time, talent, or treasure. But what's funny is that they did it not just individually, but they did it in community. Whenever the wise men went, they understood that they could have had plans of their own, but they traveled with a group to give their gifts and honor Christ. They traveled with a group. They knew God's worth and purposes were greater than their independent plans, so they openly and together gave out of their treasures what was valuable to them and useful to Christ. Do you know that everything that you give out of your treasure gets multiplied in community? Whatever God wants to do in you and through you gets multiplied and worked out in community. That's the plan of God. And a lot of times we just want to have this Western spirituality where we work out our own salvation, not with fear and trembling, but with independence and autonomy. But that was never God's way. God said, if you're coming to worship me, go in this caravan that I'm giving you. Go with people who could actually look you in the eye. And if you could imagine on that 800-mile journey, how many people know that at some point they might have wanted to turn back? They're like, listen, we're following this star, and I don't know if it's going to work out like we expect it to. You ever followed a star before? Keeps moving on me. Where do you see less? I don't know. Well, listen, just keep going. And when one of them wanted to turn back, you better believe there was another saying, hey, listen, the word says it's going to be exactly where he said it would be, this king. Let's keep going. And when one of them wanted to turn back, there was another saying, nope, the star hasn't finished moving. We've got to keep going until we arrive to the one who's proclaimed himself to be king of the Jews. And it's only in community that you get the benevolent rulership of life, of Christ, worked out in your life. If you don't have somebody who can look you in the eye and say, how are you giving your time, your treasure, your talent to him in a way that's worthy of his lordship, then you don't have what he has for you. That is his design. It's what we saw with the wise men. There was a man named John Ortberg who said this about community. He said, in community, just like the wise men had community on their way to worship Christ, in community, we discover who we really are. Isn't that true? Anybody ever thought of themselves more highly than they ought to until they actually got married? And then all of a sudden you were like, oh, that's who I am. 
or you actually had a friend who loved you enough to tell you not just what you wanted to hear, but the truth? Anybody ever had a friend like that? One who wouldn't just stroke you, but one who would actually say, hey, listen, you've got a raisin in your tooth? <laughs> How many people have been at a work meeting before and actually discovered that you had one all the meeting long and nobody told you anything? Those aren't your friends who are surrounding you, right? But he says in community, we find out who we really are and how much transformation we still require. He said, this is why I am irrevocably committed to small groups. This is why as we begin the new year, I know many of our people are dispersed over the course of the holiday season, but when we get back, we encourage everybody to get involved in a community group, to get involved in ongoing weekly discipleship. He says, because through community groups, we can accomplish our God-entrusted work to not just educate, but transform human beings. The point of worship is that we be transformed, not that we would just grow in knowledge, that we'd actually be sanctified by the Spirit of Christ and the Word of God. And if you look at yourself at the end of 2019 and say, I actually look the same as I did in January of this year, or potentially worse, in my opinion, then there's an issue. Because the Bible says that when we're in the face of God, we're being transformed from faith to faith, from strength to strength, and from glory to glory. Do you know that your destiny is to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ? So that what I look like today should look more like Jesus than it did earlier this year. But you know how that happens in your life? Not by just the Holy Spirit independently working in your life, but the Holy Spirit working through other people to help mold and shape you into the image of Christ. That's why the Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man or woman sharpens another. Yes, it produces sparks. Yes, it produces friction at times, but it will produce the image of Christ in you if you submit to it and allow it to. Allow God's benevolent rulership to do its work in your life. But the question is, who, who do you allow to speak into your life? Because ultimately, the goal is that we would not just allow God to draw near, but when he draws near, that we'd return a different way. We'd return a different way. Do you know that every time we show up in worship, it's not only to meet with Jesus, but it's to leave a different way. Does everybody realize that? To leave a different way. I'm not just doing my duty here. I'm here to meet with God, and as I meet with God, as I leave this place, leave a different way whether it be through the healing of my body that Pastor Cole was praying for earlier, you know I come expecting, whether it be the reconciliation in some relationship, right, that when my heart is convicted or pricked, I get on the phone and call some people sometimes after service, say, you know what, not necessarily I had beef with them, but I know they had beef with me. Let me call and reconcile some things with them. Anybody ever had to do that before? 
leaving a service is sort of like, I have some forgiveness to do. Anybody before had to do that, right? You leave a different way. Or maybe it's that, wait a minute, I'm focused in now on this part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit that I need to give myself to, that I'm no longer going to just let pass under the bridge. I'm not going to allow it to just be taken for granted anymore. I'm not going to be impatient and say, it's okay, it's just my nature. I'm going to actually choose to live differently as I leave this place when I'm confronted with the Word of God, right? Transformation is the result. And that was the point, that though... Herod said, hey, wise men, come back and report to me where this Christ was to be found. It said that they were warned in a dream. Hey, listen, you need to go back a different way. Though you were used to coming this way before, I'm telling you, go back to the place where you came from a different way. That means it's going to require you to do something different. When we leave the place of worship, when we repent, it means that we do something different, right? Everybody knows, you hear it all the time in your seminars, that the definition of insanity is doing what? The same thing over and over again and doing what? Expecting different results. That's insanity, right? Well, repentance actually requires that you leave a different way, meaning what do I need to do differently to live differently under the benevolent rulership of Christ. How do my relationships need to change leaving this place today? How does the use of my finances need to change today as I leave this place? How does the use of my time going into 2020 need to change to be submitted to the leadership of Christ? How does it need to change? You need to evaluate, think, pray, and say, God, lead me in your good and prosperous way. There was a man named Napoleon Hill who actually talked about transformation, and he says, first comes thought, then organization of that thought into ideas and plans, then transformation of those plans into reality. The beginning, as you will observe, is in your imagination. What that means is you need to imagine yourself doing something different before you actually do it. You need to see yourself living differently before you actually do. It's like taking a shot in basketball, right? They actually say that if you visualize yourself making the shot, your percentage increases. Rick Warren said it about the um, transformation this way. He said, transformation, and Rick Warren, again, is the writer of The Purpose Driven Life. Many of you have heard of that book before. But he said, transformation is also a process. And as life happens, there are tons of ups and downs. Anybody say amen to that? There are tons of ups and downs. It's a journey of discovery. There are moments of mountaintops and moments in deep valleys of despair. But the point is, keep going till the star stops. The point is, keep moving until you find the Christ. Keep moving until he meets with you and you're transformed by him. Why? Because that's his desire for you. It's his promise toward you. But going back to the idea of the fact that we need to do it in the midst of community, I like what one coach of an Alabama softball team said. You've seen it before. He said, uncoachable kids become unemployable adults. Let your kids get used to 
someone being tough on them. It's life. Get over it. Isn't that the truth? And if you can never allow somebody to tell you something and coach you in a way that's going to provoke that transformation in life, then you'll stay the same. Right? Has anybody seen this before? And then finally, let's end with this image. It's just that you're going to basically in life be one of these two people in this process of transformation. It's not a question of if you failed before. It's a matter of what you do with that failure. Anybody ever failed before? <laughs> Life, business, relationships, your walk with God. Anybody ever failed before? Well, this is what he says. He says unsuccessful people allow the devil to build them down, like load them down with those bricks, right? Condemnation. I can't move because I'm under the weight of my own failures. But in the grace of God, when we come to worship God and we submit to the lordship of God, he said he turns those failures into bricks that lead to steps unto his high calling in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because every mistake I've made, you know what it becomes now? It's part of the testimony that I have of how God's not only forgiven me, but redeemed me by the cross, washed me clean of my sin, and actually has given me the know-how to say, hey, listen, he brought me out. He can bring you out too. Do the things I've done, and listen, you're going to come out too. And those failures actually become the stepping stones to walking not only under the benevolent rule of Christ, but walking in his high calling for us in Christ Jesus. We'll end with this, Philippians 3. He said, I want you to do this, Paul, talking to the church. As we end 2019, he says, I want you to forget. I want you to forget what's behind. Forget what's behind. Anybody have some things in 2019 you'd like to forget? Who you've been, things you've done, places you've been, anybody. I know I do. He said, forgetting what's behind and straining toward what's ahead. I want you to strive to lay hold of that heavenly call for which Jesus Christ laid hold of you. And the beauty of that is it's not initiated by us, but it's initiated by him. He's got plans and purposes greater than your own for yourself. And so he says, strive towards that high upward call that he laid hold of you for. Not what you're satisfied with, not what you've become accustomed to, but in repentance and faith, what you're going to come into under his benevolent rulership. In Jesus' name. Amen? All right. Let's come back into a time of worship now. Worship. And as we worship, we're going to ask you to do this. We're going to ask you to do the things that we've been talking about and actually pray and think. Have I been like Herod or have I been like the wise men up to this point in my life? Have I submitted to his benevolent rulership or have I tried to get rid of those who would try to introduce it in my life? Have I done it on my own or have I done it in community? If you can answer those questions, then it'll help you to leave this place a different man and a different woman today and prepare you for a different 2020 in Jesus' name. Amen.